Welcome, everyone, to tonight's program. I always like to begin by quoting my guru, Baba Muktananda, who began every program by saying in Hindi, Sabko Varisanmane Kesat, Pemse Hadik Swagat. And that means, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always say that the essence of spirituality is to welcome another person with love. And so in that spirit, I want to welcome everybody tonight, everyone uh, in Radio Land. Where am I looking here? Everyone in Radio Land, everyone here. <clears throat> welcome. And spirituality really is about opening your heart and having love. It's very, uh, it's very e easy to fall into enmity and paranoia and many negative emotions. But to be open-hearted, to love others, and to be open to them is a great thing. And so this is the essence of spirituality. Tonight, um, I was thinking, you know, while uh, Ishwar was giving her talk that Baba gave me a word too. Um, and <clears throat> you've heard all my stories a million times. So, of course, he gave me the word Om Namah Shivaya. And he also gave me the word, I am the self. But he gave me the word contentment. Uh, and he once wrote me, after I was talking about different expansionist ideas about uh, the Anabharashram, he said, be content with what you have. And that word has stood with me all these years. It's like, uh, it's like patience. It opens up the whole of spirituality to you, if you stay with it, to be content. Uh, a wonderful thing. So it doesn't mean I'm going to give everybody a word. It doesn't mean that. <laughs> but if they want one, they could ask for one. They could ask for one. <laughs> David Ma will give you it. <laughs> David Ma will channel the words. <clears throat> anyway, uh, tonight, uh, what we do in these satsangs, in these programs, um, is I celebrate the great beings. We're really celebrating our own self, our own highest potential, the possibility every one of us has to be the best version of a self that we can be, to be the version of ourself that is always happy and loving and open and wise and peaceful and joyous. There is a person like that inside every one of us uh, and fitfully, little bits of it emerge under certain circumstances. But the goal of yoga, of inner work, of meditation, is to make that person come out and become that person. Uh, why did I start talking about this? Just, uh, Baba gave you the word contentment. No, you were talking <laughs> no. just about what the purpose of satsang. That's it. <laughs> the purpose of satsang. And that there are, I discovered... Um, many, many years ago, that there were great beings on the earth now who had attained that state. They'd become the best version of themselves. They were full of love and joy and peace and so on. And the night I heard about that, which was in Chicago in 1970, uh, that night I decided I would go and find such a person. And I was lucky because... Uh, I only had to get, quit my job and sell everything and travel around the world halfway 
and uh, go through various trips, and finally I met Baba. Um, but every, every, because I value that state, that potential within every one of us, and because I value those beings who've attained that state and can show us the way and help us attain that state, I value that more than anything. Um, so we celebrate them in satsang every Saturday night. And I like to celebrate different saints and sages and yogis, different ones who have influenced me on the way, and especially my own guru, Baba Muktananda, and his guru, Bhagavan Nityananda. But tonight, the first one that I encountered, um, before I didn't encounter him in the flesh, he was long dead, but uh, whose teachings I came across even before I became interested in India and yoga, and that is this gentleman here. There he is. <clears throat> the mysterious George Ivanovich Gurdjieff. Uh, he, his, uh, one of his uh, parents was uh, Armenian and one Greek, I think. And he lived in eastern Turkey. So he's from the, the Middle East. <clears throat> An extraordinary teacher, possibly the first wisdom teacher from the East that came to the West. He was born around, uh, somewhere around 1870. Uh, with him, everything is uh, uncertain. He, of course, he eradicated personal history, created lots of mysteries. Um, but around 1872 is the best guess. He died in 1949 after a, an extraordinary uh, career, great influence. Um, what else do you have? We have him at a later age. This is the familiar figure during his New York years. Uh, he manifested in the East and he traveled uh, during the First World War, he traveled West. He got to France. He set up uh, an ashram, we could say, or an institute near Paris, in Fontainebleau. And then uh, he, he had students all over the world and they invited him to America, and he traveled to New York in 1920 or 22, and gave programs at Carnegie Hall and various places like that, where they demonstrated dancing movements, he called them, different movements, which relate to Hatha Yoga, different kinds of postures and so on, and he gave spiritual teachings. Um, <clears throat> what else do you have? Do you have another one? He's, he loved to drive. He'd jump in the car and start driving at great, uh, extraordinary speeds, and he got into several accidents, too. Um, and you never knew where he was going, but he was quite, quite a guy. The stories about him are wonderful. Okay, and oh, I should also show you another person, uh, because he had many uh, very highly educated disciples in the West. Uh, one of them is a fellow named C.S. Knott. You, can you put him up? Yeah. This is C.S. Nott. He's Satguru Nott. <laughs> no, he's not a Satguru, but he's not. Um, and he was a... <laughs> he is not. He, he, um, he was an author and a publisher and a translator. He met Gurdjieff and Oraj. Oraj is one of his major disciples. 
in New York in 1923. And then he spent time in, uh, in France at his institute. Uh, <clears throat> how would you say that? The Priore? Priore. Priore. Yeah, and the institute in, outside of Paris. Um, <clears throat> so he's written a couple of very good memoirs, and uh, some of what I'm going to read tonight are from that. And then we have something from another. Uh, now, what Gurdjieff said, basically, was that man is a machine. Man cannot do. That we are mechanical. We think we're free, but actually we're imprisoned by our tendencies, our habits, that we've inherited from our parents, from our culture, unthinking habits, uh, mostly talking about negative emotions, uh, our anger, our paranoia, our uh, depression, our fears, all these things that, that we live in day to day. And he said, because of that, we're mechanical and we're at the mercy of these tendencies. But through inner work, through practice, through meditation, we can overcome these tendencies and become a whole new person, a person who lives in joy, lives in intelligence, and so on. And so in, in his uh, ashram, we'll call it, he taught people to do that. He, he had various ways of doing it. Um, <clears throat> but here are some uh, encounters with him and some of his teachings. The first couple are from... Uh, uh, C.S. Knott's book. Uh, he met Gurdjieff in 1923 in New York, and he went to some of Gurdjieff's lectures there, the informal gatherings. So here's one, one of them. <clears throat> Someone asked, what place has free will in your system? Gurdjieff says, ordinary man has no will. He does nothing of himself. What is regarded as mill is merely a strong desire. A strong man has strong desires. A weak man has weak desires. Man is pulled this way and that way by his desires, his wants. He has no real wish. He has many wants. It's a very interesting statement. That we're pulled, uh, pulled apart by our desires, but we have no real wish. What's the difference between a wish and a want? He means a deep inner aspiration, spiritual aspiration, would be a wish. A want is, I want this, I want that, I want that, and we go back and forth about all these things. He says, a man may have many desires, but one may predominate, and he lives his life to accomplish this desire. He sacrifices everything, and people say he has a strong will just as strong desires, Gurdjieff would say. Only a man who has an I can have will. I is I, the letter I. It means a person who knows his deep self, his true self. Only a person who knows himself can have will. When a man has an I, he can be master of himself. Then he has will that is free not a want or desire subject to everything around him. 
which can change with food, people, climate, sex. Real will comes from conscious wish by doing things voluntarily. Put it another way, Gurdjieff would say, when we're at the effect of externals, we don't have freedom. We don't have will. We're bouncing around always. We see this. And this culture, in our, our culture now, it's more and more that way. We have so many stimuli. We have the television and now the internet and, and all the devices that we see. There's so much input and creating desires for this and desires for that and so on so that we don't actually know what's inside of us. We just are like ping pong balls with uh, the external. So we don't really have willpower, he's saying. <clears throat> but you must work for years, he says, for centuries perhaps, <clears throat> if to get the real will. We have a master in us, but this master is asleep. It's a wonderful thought that we have a master in us. We all feel that, don't we? That there's, there's a greater possibility in us. Don't we feel that? Greater potential. Is, uh, uh, there could be greater, but that master is asleep. He must wake up and control all these little masters in us. <laughs> We've got little masters. I want this, I want that, I want that, don't want this, don't want that. These little masters are always screaming and yelling. But the, the real master is the wise person, the Christ within us, the Buddha within us, that knows the truth and is serene and calm and knows the goal. He says, very often what is called will is an adjustment between willingness and unwillingness. For example, the mind wants something, the feelings do not want it. You ever been in that situation? If the mind is, in this case, stronger than the feelings, man obeys his mind. If the two are more or less equal, the result is conflict, hesitation, dilly-dallying. This is what is called free will for an ordinary man. He is ruled now by the mind, now by the feelings, now by the body, still more by the sex center. So this is what freedom is. <clears throat> Real freedom Gurdjieff would say, would be to be ruled not by these externals, but by the highest principle. What we would call the Shakti is when, when we move towards the Shakti, when we make that our goal, that's getting real will. <clears throat> following the Shakti, following the higher principle, the greatest good uh, is real will. Another, another uh, session in New York, 1923. At a meeting, someone said, I'm not very clear about what you mean by considering. Now, Gurdjieff gave very valuable teaching about considering. He, called, he said there are two kinds of considering, external considering and internal considering. He said, externally consider always. Internally consider Never. Internal considering is very weak and makes us weak, loses energy. External considering makes us strong. So let's see if we can get some uh, understanding of that. <clears throat> Gurdjieff replied, I'll give you a simple example. Although I'm accustomed to sitting with my legs crossed under me, like I'm sitting, 
I consider the opinion of the people here, and I sit as they do with their legs down. This is external considering. <laughs> so now that's interesting because the same act could be external considering, but it could also be internal considering. If you put your legs down for the sake of the other people to make them feel at ease and so they're not uncomfortable, that's external considering. That's good. We could say that manners is a form of external considering. So if parents teach their children manners very well, they're strengthening them spiritually because it helps them uh, ex eventually learn external considering. They're, they're paying attention to other people and not just living from their uh, selfish needs. So that's what uh, parents should do. Um, but um, it could also be internal considering because you could like to sit this way, but you're embarrassed to sit this way. So you, you conform out of embarrassment. That's internal considering. That's not good. Because when you do it for the sake of the others, to make them comfortable, that's OK. But because of your own embarrassment, stupid. <laughs> OK. He says, as regards internal considering, this is the bad one, someone looks at me as I think disapprovingly. I've known people who are extreme internal considerers, that they look around the room, they scan the room, they come in, they see who's looking at them sideways, and they see who might have a bad thought about them, and then they dwell on that. We all have that tendency to some extent, but I'm talking about extreme cases. And then they try to, they read minds, oh, you don't think well of me. And they get all caught up in that. So he says, someone looks at me disapprovingly, this starts corresponding associations in my feelings. So I start going off. If I am too weak to refrain from reacting, I am annoyed with him. So instead of just ignoring it, I get all caught up and I get angry. I consider internally, and now that I'm annoyed, and show that, and then I show that I'm annoyed, then I, I lash out. This is how we usually live. We manifest outside what we feel inside. And so, Gurdjieff always said, don't manifest negative emotions. It's a great lesson to strengthen yourself, to develop will. Uh, you, work at not manifesting negative emotions. You might be full of fear, you might be full of anger, you might, instead of having that tantrum and acting it out, hold it inside. Don't act on it. This is strengthening it. When you indulge it, then you create a chain of events and weakens you, this is what, he, this is what he's saying. Uh, he says, <clears throat> We should try to draw a line between the inner and the outer impacts. Externally, we should sometimes consider even more than we do now. Be more polite to people than we usually are, for example. <clears throat> uh, it can be said that until now, it's been out, what's been outside should be inside, and what's been inside should be outside. Unfortunately, we always react. We're very reactant. Something happens, we react to it. But why should I be annoyed or hurt if someone looks at me disapprovingly? 
shouldn't be so weak that just to take the bait all the time. <clears throat> or if he doesn't look at me, doesn't he notice me? Then we feel rejected. <clears throat> it may be that he himself is, is a slave of someone else's opinion. They're having a bad day. It has nothing to do with you. They're freaking out about something else because somebody else neglected them. <clears throat> Perhaps he's an automaton, a parrot repeating another's words. Perhaps someone has trod on his corns. <laughs> this is a Gurdjieff phrase. So you get trod, trod on your corns, I mean some vulnerable point. Someone said something that insulted you because you let it, you know, so trod on your corns. <clears throat> and tomorrow he may change. If he is weak and I am annoyed with him, I am even weaker. And by cons internal considering, making a mountain out of a molehill and getting into a state of resentment, I may spoil my relations with other people. <clears throat> it must be understood very clearly and established as a principle that you must not let yourself become slaves to other people's opinions. You see what he's trying to do here? Strengthen us so that we come from within ourselves rather than from external things. Other people's opinions don't matter. Everybody has opinions. <clears throat> he said, you must be free from those around you. And when you become free inside, you will be free of them. <clears throat> At times it may be necessary for you to pretend to be annoyed. And it does not follow that if someone slaps you on one cheek, you should always offer the other. This is, Jesus said, if someone slaps you on one cheek, uh, let him, you know, offer him. Baba said, famously, Baba said, if someone slaps me on one cheek, I'll slap him all over his body. <laughs> and so Gurdjieff is saying, that's not a formula. It doesn't mean that you have to become a victim. Uh, but you should be free inside. He says, uh, uh, it is necessary sometimes to answer back in such a way that the other will forget his grandmother. <laughs> Scare him. <clears throat> but you must not consider internally. So it's, it's as though you, you think, what do I need to do in this situation that will be best for the other person as well as for me so I don't have to get toxic? And sometimes it might be good to be very strong other times, you let it go. So it depends on the situation. He talks about that very interestingly now. Sometimes one should retaliate, other times not. Now that seems like a rational thing. It's situational. Life is filled with these situations where you have to make choices, um, moment to moment. How do you determine which choice is right? One choice will enhance your energy and uplift you. The other choice will take away your energy and plunge you into negative emotions and weaken you. And so if you keep working towards empowering yourself truly, inwardly, not externally, like, I'm the big deal, you know, shut up. Not like that, but truly inside, then you're working in the right direction. He says a man can choose only when he's free inside, to make the right choice in all these situations that happen to us on a daily basis, 
all day long to make these choices. He says, an ordinary man cannot choose, cannot sum up the situation quickly and impartially. I love that. We have to see the situation quickly and impartially, not stuck in some preconceived thing or some attachment. He says, for with him, his external is his internal. This is the ordinary person. It is necessary to work on oneself, to learn to be unbiased. That's one of the great qualities, is to be fair-minded and to see things as they are. He says, to sort out and analyze each situation as if one were another person. Don't get identified. Only then can one be just. To be just at the moment of action is a hundred times more valuable than to be just afterwards. Well, afterwards you say, oh, I didn't do so well, I have to apologize. That's good. That's good. But to actually to be in the moment and to act correctly, that's even better. That's the best thing. And only when you can be really impartial as regards yourself will you be able to be impartial towards others. So, so that you have to really see yourself as you are and then you can see everything as it is. A very great deal is necessary for this. Free will is not to be had for the asking, nor can it be bought in a shop. Impartial action is the basis of inner freedom, the first step towards free will. Marvelous teaching, isn't it? It's a very high bar. It's a very high bar to be free, impartial, fair-minded, and not the, imprisoned by negative emotions, not imprisoned by what we think somebody else is thinking about us. That's the archetypal internal considering, is to imagine what someone else is thinking about us and they get freaked out by it. It's all our own imagination. You know, We don't know, he might not be thinking about us at all. He's thinking about what we're thinking about him. Anyway. <clears throat> so I now have another bit, a little less heavy duty and more enjoyable. Um, but this is uh, another uh, one of his disciples, a very distinguished teacher named John Bennett. We have a picture of him. There he is, a rugged John Bennett. Uh, he was, uh, well, he had an interesting career. I won't go into it. <laughs> He worked for the British government and, uh, and uh, he became, eventually became a teacher. I first encountered him uh, in India. I read a book called uh, The Long Pilgrimage, which was about his encounter with an Indian yogi. Went to India, he met uh, a, a yogi named Shiva Puri Baba who was supposedly 140 years old. Uh, and he wrote a great book about it. This, this uh, was it Shiva Puri? Yeah, I think so. He, uh, he went to, he came to England and he met Queen Victoria and all kinds of things. Um, but Bennett became a teacher of Gurdjieff's system and he tells about, he spent some time at the Priore with Gurdjieff uh, and he tells a wonderful story about uh, an encounter there. So this is John Bennett, later as I said a distinguished teacher. Um, you can turn him off. And um, this is uh, an early encounter. Can I say something? Yes. I made a 
him coming to meet Queen Victoria. Shiva Puri Baba. What? Yeah, there's a movie about it. I saw the movie. I think it was on Netflix. <laughs> Seriously? Seriously. He became an advisor to her. Oh, wait, it may not be. I, I think it's the same thing. I've heard of that one. That's a different thing, isn't it? I don't think so. <laughs> okay, maybe so. All right. We'll research that. <laughs> it was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> was he a yogi? Yeah. No. It may be based on that, yeah. It's based on that. Okay. Probably. Sometimes Gurdjieff gave lectures. Ah. <clears throat> These were very great events for everyone was uh, was avid for a better understanding of all the strange things that were happening to us and all these strange concepts, internal, external, considering, uh, identifying, and being a machine, all these things, and many, many more complex concepts of Gurdjieff. He says, well, I can repeat one lecture verbatim. This one he remembers entirely, so here's one. One evening, Major Pinder, who, knowing Russian very well, acted as an interpreter, announced that there was to be a lecture. He's an English major. We went to the study house. This is in his, on his estate there. Uh, there was one place like a hall, like a lecture hall, like here, which is called the study house. Uh, we went to the study house as usual, but instead of practicing the exercises, we sat expectantly around the hall on our cushions. Time passed, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, midnight. At last, Gurdjieff arrived. Evidently, having driven out from Paris, accompanied by, by Madame Ostrowski, Madame Ospensky, and Major Pinder. He stood and looked at us for a long time and said in English, and this is complete coincidence, are you ready? Patience is the teacher of will. <laughs> when the coincidence like that happened, you know something divine is going on. Patience is the, is the mother of will. If you have not a mother, how can you be born? <clears throat> and then he walked out of the study house. <laughs> that was either a great teaching or he was late and that's how he was covering himself. <laughs> yeah. This lecture made a very strong impression on me because I knew that I was lacking uh, equally in patience and in will. So now we're going to hear a story about how he got that. After about a fortnight of this life, uh, I began uh, to fall very ill with dysentery. I took literally what Gurdjieff said about disregarding the objections of my body and forced myself to work even harder than the others. He's being a great yogi. Each morning, it was harder and harder to get out of bed, and my body shrank from the heavy work in the heat of the sun. They were working around the ashram, you know, digging and doing stuff. <clears throat> the constant diarrhea made me very weak, but somehow I kept going. Finally, a day came when I simply could not stand up. <laughs> I was shaking with fever and very wretched in myself, feeling I had failed. Just as I was saying to myself, I will stay in bed today, I felt my body rising. I dressed and went to work as usual, but this time with a queer sense of being held together 
by a superior will that was not my own. We worked as usual in the morning. I could not eat lunch that day, but lay on the ground wondering if I was going to die. Gurdjieff had just introduced afternoon practice of the exercises out of doors under the lime grove. When the pupils began to collect under the lime trees, I joined them. Gurdjieff and Hartman came out together. Hartman was the musician. <clears throat> the piano was carried out from the study house by six men. I was one of them, and I stumbled, nearly bringing the others down. I was hot and miserable. We started by working on a new exercise of incredible complexity that even the most experienced Russian pupils could not master. Those would be his oldest disciples who'd been with him for years. The structure of the exercises was drawn on the board in symbols, <clears throat> and head, feet, arms, and torso had to follow independent sequences. You know when you're a kid, they say, can you, can you do something like, what do, what do they say? Do, yeah, the patch your head and do that. So Gurdjieff had them doing all these things with, uh, so their arm, head, feet, arms, and torso all moving in different directions. <laughs> uh, Gurdjieff pretended to be angry and stopped us, saying we must practice rhythms. Hartman began to play one rhythm after another, which had to be followed with the feet. <laughs> I felt very ill and weak. A deadly lassitude took possession of me, so that every moment became a supreme effort of will. One of the English pupils uh, stopped and sat down, then another and another. Soon I ceased to be aware of anything but the music and my own weakness. I kept saying to myself, at the next change I will stop. Hartman went on and on. One by one, all the English pupils fell out, and most of the Russian women. Only six or seven men, and I believe Jean de Salzman, continued. Gurdjieff stood watching intently. <clears throat> time, time lost the causality of before and after. There was no past and no future, only the present agony of making the body move. Gradually, I became aware that Gurdjieff was putting all his attention on me. There was an unspoken demand that was, the same, that was at the same time an encouragement and a promise. I must not give up if it killed me. Suddenly, I was filled with the influx of an immense power. My body seemed to have turned into light. I could not feel its presence in the usual ways. There was no effort, no pain, no weariness, not even any sense of weight. I felt an intense gratitude towards Gurdjieff and Thomas de Hartman, but they had quietly gone off, having dismissed the class and leaving me quite alone. So this is kind of Shaktipat experience where some transmission of energies happen and it's taken right out of this intense suffering. <clears throat> My own state was blissful beyond anything I'd ever known it was quite different from the ecstasy of sexual union, for it was altogether free and detached from the body. It was exaltation in the faith that can move mountains. I felt no fatigue and no sense of effort. My weak, rebellious, suffering body had become strong and obedient. The diarrhea ceased, 
and I no longer felt the gnawing abdominal pains that had been with me for days. Moreover, I experienced a clarity of thought that I had only known involuntarily and at rare moments, but which now was at my command. I discovered I could be aware of the fifth dimension. <clears throat> what do you think he means by that? Some, the higher, the higher, well, it's the Shakti, we would say the Shakti, the higher power. The phrase, in my mind's eye, took a new meaning as I saw the eternal pattern in each thing. It's like a psychedelic experience where you see everything connected to everything else. I looked at the trees, the plants, the water flowing in the canal, and lastly, my own body. Time and eternity were the conditions of our experience and the harmonious development of man towards which Gurdjieff was leading us was the secret of true freedom. So he's understanding what Gurdjieff's teaching really is about, about putting us in harmony with this higher power. I remember saying aloud, now I see why God hides himself from us. But even now I kind of recall the intuition behind this exclamation. He shouted it out. Gurdjieff had said to me at our first meeting that it's not enough to know that another world exists. One must be able to enter it at will. Now I was living in eternity, and yet I had not lost my hold on time. I was aware that life itself is infinitely richer and greater than our thinking mind can possibly know about it. <clears throat> that there's a, a deeper richness right here and now, if we can get to it. As the pupils began to return to the garden to begin the evening watering, I wandered into the forest. I went past the stone quarry, past the saw pit, along a path that led up the hill behind Avon. The great trees, uh, the gray rocks, the, the cloudless sky, and the murmur of evening insects, insects all blended with my inner life. So he's in a very high state of awareness, intoxication of divinity. There was no distinction of outside and inside. Everything was where it was, and so was neither inside nor outside of anything else. I no longer wished to test anything or prove anything. I was satisfied to be just as I was. Turning a bend in the path where there was a big gray rock, I met Gurdjieff. Our meeting seemed inevitable, although I'd never been in that part of the forest before. Without any preliminaries, he began to talk about the energies that work in man. <clears throat> and he said, there is, I do the imitation, there is certain energy that is necessary for work on oneself. I won't do that. <laughs> no man can make efforts, Gurdjieff's talking, uh, unless he has a supply of this energy. We can call it the higher emotional energy. We call it Shakti spiritual energy. <clears throat> Everyone, by a natural process, makes a small amount of this energy every day. So in our life, we, we, we do that by various activities that we do. We gain some energy, possibly. Of course, we, we don't know how we did it, and then we lose it also in different ways. He says, if rightly used, it enables man to achieve much for his own self-perfecting. But he can only get to a certain point this way. 
The real complete transformation of being that is indispensable for a man who wishes to fulfill the purpose of his existence requires a very much greater concentration of higher emotional energy than that which comes to him by nature. So in normal life, you know, what the things we do to acquire energy uh, can't get us enough of a jolt to take us to a higher plane. He says, there are some people in the work, but they are very rare, who are connected to a great reservoir or accumulator of this energy. Some people who are connected. That's what I saw in Baba. When I looked at Baba, this was a man who was connected to an infinite source of energy. It's quite remarkable. It was something that was completely visible to me. And he was in touch with this thing. How he got there, God only knew. And how did he do it? But I certainly wanted to be around it. And later, as I heard what he was saying, he said he got connected by his relationship with his guru. And his guru had the same connection. In fact, if you go to Ganeshpuri now, you know that that connection uh, exists there in the same way. So this is the great reservoir or accumulator of this energy. <clears throat> this reservoir has no limits. Those who can draw upon it can be a means of helping others. So a great guru like Baba uh, can draw on it and then through that awaken others. Suppose that a man needs 100 units of this energy for his own transformation, but he only has 10 units and cannot make more for himself. He is helpless. But with the help of someone who can draw upon the great accumulator, he can borrow 90 more. Then his work can be effective. <clears throat> he let all this sink in <clears throat> and then stopped and looking to my eyes said, this is really interesting what he said, those who have this quality belong to a special part of the highest caste of humanity. It may be that one day you will become such. He's in this ecstatic state and, and he's telling them that you may one day be a transmitter of this energy connected to this. <clears throat> but you'll have to wait for many years. What you've received today is a taste of what is possible for you. So in other words, it was very clear to Gurdjieff what had happened. They didn't talk about it, but he saw it. Until now, you have only known about these things theoretically, but now you have experience. When a man has had an experience of reality, he is responsible for what he does in his life, with his life. He stopped speaking, and I continued to walk in the forest. How's that? Isn't that wonderful? But I love that line. When a man has had an experience of reality, he is responsible for what he does with his life. So that when you have Shaktipat, when you get that awakening, uh, along with it becomes a responsibility to cultivate that awakening, not to turn away from that awakening, to cultivate and grow in that, because now you have the freedom to do that. And so this is the responsibility he's talking about. So I, I don't have it here, but what happened is he was in this whole state the whole night. Finally, Gurdjieff said, go to sleep. <laughs> and uh, he says, and you'll sleep, and when you wake up, you won't have this anymore, but it's all right because you can work back towards it. And that's what happened. He woke up, and, and uh, 
it was gone. <laughs> but he'd been there. Great story, isn't that? Okay, so let's meditate. We'll meditate for 10 minutes. <clears throat> and uh, the great accumulator is in the sky somewhere, <laughs> but it's actually also within us. Each of us has an access point to that. In our tradition, we call it the inner self. I call it the clear space of good feeling. It's a space of peacefulness inside. When we can get to that state of peacefulness, we can access this higher degree of energy and upliftment and love and everything that it entails. So in meditation, we try to become quiet. We just let the mind quiet down. It's the mind and emotions, the turbulence of the mind and emotions that take us away from our connection, our internal connection. So when we meditate, let the mind become quiet. Let it run, don't worry about it, just don't chase after it. It can chatter away. Eventually it'll quiet down if you don't pay much heed to it. And you can say the mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, as a way of focusing the mind. And try to find that place of peace within. And in that peace, you'll discover this tremendous energy, this love, this joy, that's actually who we really are. So let's meditate for 10 minutes on the inner self. And once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. Satguna Maharaj Kijay. Meditate for 10 minutes. <laughs> 